Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols, and on today's episode, we have a special guest, Dr. Jason Novetsky. He has a slew of experience in the sport and performance psychology side of things. Uh, he's he's the owner of Champion Mindset Group. He has a PhD. Uh, he's got a bachelor's degree in psychology. Uh, he's worked in psychology for decades. Uh, he's uh, He's been a sport and performance psychologist for over 10 years. Uh, most notably, maybe to you, if you if you listen to you're listening to a golf podcast, so chances are you've heard of Chasing Scratch. He um, he's uh, the Chasing Scratch guys. Uh, mental coach. Maybe you've heard him on a, on a, some of those episodes. So he's a, he's an entertaining guy. He's an interesting guy. He's down to earth. He's, he's relatable in the way that he talks about things. So I, I know you're going to get a lot out of this. So let's go and get right into this episode with Dr. Jason Novetsky. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Novetsky, I appreciate you uh, joining the Mental Golf Show. Uh, it's an honor to get to talk to you. Um, I've heard a lot about you. I've heard you on some other podcasts. So maybe you could introduce yourself. What it, What would you say if someone walked up to you at a party or in the <laughs> elevator or something? Um, what do you do? Uh, what What do you do, Jason? You know, yeah. what would you say back to him? Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me on. I'm honored to be here. I know you've had lots of great minds on this show, so I'm truly blessed to be on the show with you. So. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the corny response that I sometimes say just to get a laugh is that I help people win their personal championships. Uh, and I do that by teaching them mental skills and strategies so they can optimize their mind uh, to maximize their physical performance. So in other words, uh, you know, I'm a sport and performance psychology coach that works with athletes to help them achieve their goals. So when you say optimize the mind um, to... Would you say to enhance, maximize their, right, maximize their physical skills. That's, that's really interesting. Uh, uh, what I, um, this isn't about me, but it, it just <laughs> makes, it just reminds me of something that I believe about the mental game or psychology is it's the purpose is to give your physical skills the best opportunity to show. Is that why, why did, why do you believe that, uh, that the mental game is so important for the physical game? Well, I lived it. So uh, I was a Division One baseball player. That's kind of how I got into this work. And high school for me was relatively easy. I hate this, you know, maybe good to say, but hate to say I had what I call now the curse of talent, uh, where I was, you know, good enough to be very successful and have the opportunity to play Division One baseball as a pitcher. But when I got to college, I struggled my first year. And I did not know what was going on. I was very frustrated. I was emotional about it. And I went to my coaches one day and I said, you know, what is happening? Why am I not being successful? Do I need to throw harder, get bigger, get stronger? You know, all the stuff you would normally think of when you're 18 years old. And they said, no, physically, you're fine. It's your mental game. I didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, it was 1988. There was no Google to look it up or YouTube to or podcast to, to learn more about it. So that taught me a lot that, hey, there's more to this game than just throwing hard and being stronger and being aggressive. Uh, you really had to learn it. So, you know, that old adage, how, how much of this game is mental versus physical. And that hit me square in the face that I realized it was a lot more mental than I thought, but I wasn't giving any energy to it. And so 
Go ahead. They gave me this uh, yeah. book called The Mental Game of Baseball, and that got me off and running, and I was all in. What you what you learn from from that book that was so counter to what you had thought? What um, that that shook shook you up so much, and did it help? Like how quickly, and did it help? Yeah, it helped pretty quickly. Uh, it took me a little while to learn and incorporate uh, and implement. But what shook me up a lot was the fact that there were other people that were struggling too. That the book talked about other professionals that struggle with the mental game, and now. Thank goodness it's becoming more and more uh, open in our society to to admit those things. But the book, uh, you know, Harvey Dorfman talked about how to talk to yourself different, how to perceive certain situations differently, how to mentally prepare better, how to deal with adversity and bounce back and and have routines and systems uh, either before the game and during the game and and the importance of self-talk and that inner voice. Uh, So I started incorporating it slowly but surely. And started to notice a change in my attitude, change in my body language, uh, my confidence grew, and I started to have more and more success. So I went from a terrible year of ha- uh, going two and eight as a starting pitcher, which I hadn't lost eight games combined in high school, uh, to then the next year tying the school record for wins as a starting pitcher with nine. So total flip flop, and I didn't throw any harder, Josh. I mean, it was all it was all the mental game. So I was focused. Yeah. Yeah, went on to change my major to psychology and uh, wanted to learn more and more. Uh, unfortunately, I got hurt my senior year, blew up my elbow real bad. And uh, there was another way to use sports psychology because now who was I? I had to kind of reinvent myself. My identity was kind of shook. Uh, but I knew I wanted to stay in sports. So I went back to grad school, started learning more and more about psychology, also got into education, became a school psychologist, was coaching a lot. And about 15 years ago, champion mindset. A group was born where that's what I do now. I work with athletes of all different ages uh, and levels uh, in all different sports. So what was what was an example of your self-talk prior mm-hmm. to you caring about the mental game and then after? Give us an example and, and yeah. maybe the listener will be able to relate in some way. Well, as we talk about a lot, I had that imposter syndrome. Like, do I really belong here at the Division One level? Um, you know, all of a sudden balls are flying out of the yard. So I had a lot of self-doubt, uh, self-deprecation in my head, calling myself names. And then the change came from back then it was only, well, you've got to turn it into positive thinking, right? You've got to speak to yourself in a more positive way. But as I grew and learned more and more about performance psychology, I really subscribed to the school, what Trevor Moad started talking about in his book, It Takes What It Takes, when he's working with Russell Wilson about neutral thinking. That was the that was a big one for me in the last couple of years. And that helps my athletes too, because most elite athletes, as you know, they don't really want to talk about being more positive. In fact, it pisses them off when people say be positive, and, but they just want to know what the hell to do. And that's kind of what neutral thinking is. Like, what do I need to do? What's the wise choice in this situation? Let's focus on that. I don't need to be a cheerleader to myself. No offense to cheerleaders, but they, they don't need to be a cheerleader. Right. Yeah. Being fakely positive can even do some harm. So the the listener probably thinks that being positive is the right way to go. Yeah. Why why is being positive or why is being positive not necessarily the way to go? Why do you why do you believe that? Well I think you hit on it. It's you know you're not being truthful. Somewhere in you, you know that that's just window dressing and you really need to be tactical in your thinking. And I think when we're overly positive or overly negative, 
we use emotions. And I'm not a big fan of being emotional when we try to compete. Uh, we need to bring it back towards the middle and think more tactically than emotionally, uh, which is another one of my favorite people that passed away is Kobe Bryant talked about that, that he wanted to be more tactical in his approach, not emotional. Yeah, because high performance sports are going to bring out emotions, whether you like it or not. So the most of our tendency is going to be towards the emotions. So we've got to do what we can to be more neutral, right? And not let our emotions take us. Is that yeah. pretty, pretty because, accurate? Because we have the, you know, we perceive events, right? But then before we judge that event, so to speak, or assess it, there's a gap right there. Like something happens, we have a beat and we make a choice. Well, sometimes those emotions get us too quickly. And then we make some poor decisions. Sometimes we get lucky, but lots of times we make some poor choices if we let our emotions dictate that. And when I talk to coaches and they'll often say, well, I want my team to play with a lot more of emotion. And I said, well, I prefer you didn't. I said, why don't we bring energy versus emotion? Why don't we bring intensity instead of emotion? Because I think emotions are extremes. Because you know, when you think about it, if somebody's emotional with you, you're asking, well, why are you so emotional? And so it has a negative connotation. Uh, so, but if we bring energy or thoughtfulness or intensity, I think we can be much more successful in that situation. Right. So, what's what's a common emotion in in golf? Um, I mean, golf is full of it, right? Uh, yeah. Something that comes to mind for me is kind of moving on from a a bad shot. The emotions that come from a bad shot. What what problems can can be created? when there is an emotional reaction to a bad shot? What what could it do to the rest of your round or just the next shot? What do you think? Yeah. Well, physiologically, it could raise your heart rate, change your breathing, which is going to could mess up your timing and your tempo. But also when you're overly emotional in any situation, you tend to remember it more. It's like putting that stamp on it, like a timestamp. And so the next time you're in a similar situation, what are you more likely to think about the last time you messed up? Uh, same can be true for a positive thing, which, you know, I tell my athletes to use that. Let's let's get excited inside. Obviously, we don't want to put on a show, but let, internally, let's give yourself a fist pump so you can remember that last successful shot. Uh, I don't have a problem with people getting upset or frustrated. You know, I mean, we're going to get a little bit emotional from time to time. We try to decrease it as much as we can. But I always say, hey, once that club goes back in the bag, we need to forget it and move on. Mm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good tactic to. Uh, to go back to your tactical strategy mm-hmm, to say, mm-hmm. okay, we're, I hit that shot. Okay. Quick burst of emotion, just being human. And then, mm-hmm. you know, that's over. Yeah. When you watch guys like Jordan speed, you know, say, very, it's a bad emotional. Shot. Yeah. very emotional, very verbal, right. Yeah. And he needs to do that. I've heard Cam McCormick talk about, it. Hey, Jordan needs to verbalize that, but then it's over. Yeah. But he knows that's just who he is. Everybody's different, mm-hmm. but after a while he's able to then calm down and get back on track. Yeah. And and for him, that's probably the intensity or energy, right? And maybe when he's off, it's emotion, bringing that into the next shot and letting it make him not as tactical. And I guess we all from average amateur to best in the world, we all struggle with that. Is that what you've seen? Yeah, I think we're all a work in progress and the people that do it better are getting paid to play versus paying to play. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm, I'm tired yeah. of paying to play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so sure. you uh, notably have have worked with Mike and Eli uh, mm. of the Chasing Scratch podcast. 
for those that haven't listened, uh, what's been your interactions with them? Obviously, there's those are a couple of goofballs, and and you know, in in Wonderful a lot of cases, guys. wonderful. Yeah. They're great. They're awesome. Yeah. Um, but what's been your interaction with them? Um, you know, has it just all been fun, or has there been some serious moments of you know hard work on on the mental game? Both um, started out as a lot of fun. Uh, I started listening to them uh, kind of around pandemic time, uh, as everybody was searching for something to do, right? Mm-hmm. And caught up on their podcast. And uh, after their second season, it was clear to me that they needed some help on the mental side of the game. They it were took you two seasons. Of, well, it, well, it was already done by then. I caught got up. It. So it I got it. I got it. Yeah, yeah. And. Um, sent a message on Twitter and within minutes, Mike replied and we started chatting and, and after we got to know each other a little bit, he said, Hey, would you like to record something? And and off we went. Uh, So I've gotten to know those guys very well. They're wonderful human beings. They're very genuine, very funny. The community they've created is outstanding. I've been privileged to go to a lot of listener events now that they put on and got to meet all these people and become friends with a lot of these guys, Uh, just a positive accepting community. So yeah, the work has been, Hey, let's get down to business. Let's work on mental strategies. Let's talk about routines. Let's talk about how we deal with adversity. Uh, let's talk about self-identity, things like that. Um, this last year uh, got even more serious because they were getting more and more frustrated with not reaching scratch and having a podcast called Chasing Scratch, and they're into their sixth season. Mm-hmm. And we came to the conclusion, like, look, guys, Chasing Scratch is a journey. You're not a pro. You know, the difference between amateurs and pro is time, uh, you know, and skill, obviously, but uh, the ability to have the time to work on things. And they're getting more and more of that. And the resources they have have become amazing, the Titleist and other companies sponsoring them. Uh, but we agreed like, hey, let's just give up that one year goal and let's just make this a journey because what you've created is amazing. And so let's focus on that. And that was kind of an aha moment for them. And so they've been much happier since then and just working on getting better every day. And it's, I've been so privileged to be part of it. They're amazing people and everybody around it is amazing. Yeah, it, I, it is, it's a fun, it's just a fun thing um, that we can all relate to on some level. Has, has it been intimidating you, uh, intimidating to you to kind of be on this public stage to say, this is what, this is what I do, and I feel like this can help you. But their improvement is a direct <laughs> reflection of what you guys do, and and I'm in no way saying what you're saying is not working. Yeah, if right, if right, anything, right. it's their application of it, right? Yeah. But has it been a lot of intimidating or pressure for you to kind of be on that public stage? Not so much, because it it goes to just like in sports, it's how you choose to perceive what's going on. You know, I know in my heart that I'm providing high quality information and coaching based on the research and good theory. And they know it too. And everybody that works with me knows that. And anybody that worth the worth their salt knows that it's a two-way street. You know, you got to learn, but then you got to implement and execute with discipline. And if you don't, you don't. And and you understand it. I have a lot of clients that say they want to get better, but aren't willing to pay the price. And I have tons of clients that are willing to pay the price and just watching them blossom has been amazing. Yeah, that's well said. That's well said. Okay, so some of the um, some of the topics that you specialize in are uh, one that comes to mind uh, off the top is managing pressure and yeah. the idea of mental traps. Explain that to me. I've heard you talk about it in past past podcasts. Yeah. Explain what that what's going on there. Yeah, so I've subscribed to the 
theory of pressure that was put forward by you know Weisinger and Paula Fry that pressure is essentially three things. You're you're doing something that's really important to you. Um, the outcomes are unknown and for the most part outside of your control, and you're being judged or evaluated in that situation. So that just triggers a whole bunch of stuff in the brain. Um, you know, the amygdala in the brain starts overproducing chemicals and yada, yada, yada. We don't have to get into all that stuff. But that feeling you have when the amygdala is overproducing the neurochemicals that makes you feel different. That's why people have a hard time taking their practice game or their range game to the course because it, it counts. The outcomes are unknown. It means more. You're being evaluated and you know it, whether you like it or not. And what we try to do is help people manage the pressure. And the way we do that is by identifying those mental traps, which are essentially things we can't control. All right. So, you know, things like worrying what other people think, the weather, the course conditions, uh, the future, the past, all kinds of stuff that can exacerbate anxiety in us, which makes us feel different, which makes the club feel different our swing feel different. So we work on identifying and accepting those mental traps because everybody has them, Josh. It's mm -hmm. just the best athletes accept it, they notice it quicker, and they know how to replace those ineffective thought patterns with more productive thought patterns. So it's not about blocking it out. It's not about not thinking. It's about thinking more effectively and productively when you notice you're off track. Mm. What, how do you, how do you see the kind of typical amateur or I know you're working with some high, high performing type <clears throat> of type of athletes and, and players, but what do you what have you seen from maybe the entry level player or a junior or just the typical amateur how how they tend to handle pressure and why it's detrimental to their game yeah I, the younger athletes tend to have the common theme of worrying too much what other people think other people's expectations get into their head because think about it they have grown up in a society where everything's public social media and i don't have anything against social media but that's what they grew up with. So they always feel like they're living in a fishbowl. And the more we worry about that, the less we're focused on the present, which is, as you know, where we need to be when we're playing our best. So I try my best to help them pay attention to those things. Notice it without judgment. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, all right, I'm doing it again. Okay, I noticed it. That's a good thing. All right, let's take a breath. Let's regroup. Let's get back into our routine or some kind of swing thought or swing feel that we're trying to execute. And because when we focus on what we need to do, we're not thinking about all that other crap. Yeah. And so I, I come up with the idea of recognize and replace hmm. all day long. Recognize what you're thinking about. Is it helping? If not, let's replace it with something that will help. It doesn't hmm. have to be positive, just something productive and effective going back to tactical thinking. Yeah, I like that. Uh, we're not labeling things <clears throat> as bad and good. It's helpful, it unhelpful, effective, ineffective. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's good. So, understanding and managing confidence. Confidence is a is a huge one. Uh it's something the regular player just struggles with. What what's your thoughts on confidence? What is confidence? Uh, a yeah. lot of us just kind of say confidence as a as a vague <laughs> thing, but what is confidence and how do you cultivate it? Well, that's a great question because that's the first thing I will ask my client is how do you define confidence when yeah. you want to talk about it? So we, we bat that around for a minute and it, we come to the fact that, hey, it's an unwavering sense of belief in yourself. That's what confidence is. And it can come and go <clears throat> and it's going to be good in one area and maybe not so good in another, just based on a lot of factors. So I, again, 
I always I mentioned to you earlier that like I feel like I'm a conduit of other research and and uh, in theory. Sure. And Dr. Nate Zinzer and Steve Magnus talk a lot about confidence, and I really like what Zinzer says about it's like a bank account, and you want to put deposits in the bank of confidence, and so we want to do things like have better body language. We want to manage our thoughts in terms of, hey, what are we choosing to think about? What are we choosing to picture in our mind? How's our self-talk? Um, how's our preparation off the course, on the course? Remember past success. Go to that bank of confidence when you need to. And as Magnus would say, hey, do hard things. Like in your everyday life, make choices to do the hard things first. And the more you do that to take on those challenges, the more you can build your confidence. So we talk about these various strategies or tools. And we try to practice them, not just on the golf course, but everywhere we go. Mm -hmm. I tell my kids in school, the kids that I work with that are in like elementary school or even grades or uh, middle school and high school, like, hey, walk around school with better body language. You have to practice being a champion all the time, not just flip a switch when you get to the the arena that you're playing. Mm -hmm. Do it all the time. Yeah, because when... I mean, a, a golfer is a human, right? A, a, a golf is one of the things that we do. So if we are lacking confidence as a as a person, as a whole, when we get to the golf course, it's not going to be a whole lot better. So right. it's it's a it's a matter of becoming a more confident person, and golf will follow. So what what's a way? Just one of the things that you mentioned, preparation. What's mm -hmm. a way that preparing can cultivate confidence? What what do you? How are those two linked? So. Lots of ways. So one simple thing we do is we talk about how can you prepare the night before that you're going to play something important? How are you going to show up that day? What's your plan? What's your identity when you get out there? What are those intentions? And we even make a checklist like the night before around, let's say we're talking golf. Hey, check your gear. Make sure you got everything. What time to go into bed? Do some stretching. Hydrate. Eat a good meal. Know what time you're leaving. Visualize, use visualization skills or a concentration task or meditate. If you can take care of all that business the night before, you're going to sleep much better. You're not going to feel as anxious because you're doing something productive instead of just sitting around thinking about how it's going to go. Uh, and then when you wake up the next morning, you're ready. You're not scrounging around looking for stuff. You're not worried about as much. So you can show up with a clear head. And then we talk about preparation before the round, like have a good, effective warm-up routine and, and use your warm-up routine just to be loose. Don't put too much emphasis on how you're making shots, how the ball's rolling on the green. Just use it to get your body ready to play. And then, you know, play maybe an imaginary hole in the range before you get out there just to get into that competition mode. And then preparation before every shot. I mean, I know you've talked many, many times about pre-shot routines and things like that. Um, you know, I have a little routine. Uh, part of it I stole from Chasing Scratch. Uh, Eli works with a coach named Larry Ward, and he came up with this acronym called WELD, Wind, Elevation, Lie, Distance. Check those things first. And then I have a mental routine as you're standing behind the ball. I call it BSTV. Take a deep breath to relax. Accept the situation of the hole. Select your target and then visualize the shot, walk up and execute it. Because the goal of a preparation routine is to help you get back into the present, in my opinion. And if you're in that present, you're not thinking about the last shot, you're not thinking about your score, your playing partners, anything else, you're completely in the moment, which is where we all need to be. That sounds extremely tactical and not yeah, emotional. Yeah, that's, right. Yeah. that's right. So 
I, I love the idea of kind of setting that intention, right? You're, if you, if you say I'm intentionally going <clears> to <throat> spend the night before the morning of before each shot, after each shot, I'm not going to be caught off guard. I'm, and I mean, I'm, I, I know that no matter what happens today, I have done what I could do. Right. I, I know I've put in this preparation. I know that I've turned over every stone and that can't help but lead to confidence. Right. Yeah. Right. You're preparing for what could go wrong. Even like I'll often ask my clients, Hey, when you get to this venue tomorrow, what might be a distraction? Might there be a person there that you don't like? Uh, or maybe somebody you really like, and that could be a distraction too. So what are you going to do if that happens? It may not happen, but if it does, at least you, we're aware of it. It's not going to surprise you in any way, and you can handle it. We talk about those things. Yeah, I I was reading some scientific paper recently, and they they said that the most distracting thing, the what can create the most pressure, or one of the most uh, pressure packed scenarios, is when people you like are watching you, right? People that you know, yeah. and it seems like it wouldn't be that way. It seems yeah. like. Oh, they're going to love me no matter what. But for some reason that elicits more emotion and more, I need to perform. And maybe it's because I'm actually going to talk to them later as opposed to some random face. Does, is that kind of how you have seen yeah, it? Yeah, I've read similar research and it, and it really comes down to is um, the sense of belonging. Yeah. You don't, you know, back in the caveman days, you did not want to be ostracized from the tribe, so to speak. And mm. so you don't want to let them down. Mm or some irrational belief that you will be ostracized from your group of friends, even though they're there to support you. You don't want to let them down. Whereas if it's the opponent, that changes the juice, so to speak. And now you're competing instead of worrying about letting somebody down or failing in some way. Right. It's more of a um, proactive, which is tends to be helpful as opposed to a avoiding trouble, trying not to make a mistake. It's, right. it's more of a, I am trying to perform well. That's right. Instead yeah. of not mess up. Exactly. So one of the things you mentioned, um, as a preparation technique is meditation. <clears throat> and, mm. um, what, what are your thoughts on meditation? Wh why is it valuable? What is it? What's, what's its purpose? What, what thoughts do you have surrounding meditation? First and foremost, love it. Uh, I do it every day. I'm big into it. I've used every what you, app. That I what do you find. do specifically? Yeah. So I, I like to use apps. Um, yeah. it's, I have a little morning routine that I go through every day where I wake up in the morning. I drink my athletic greens, little shake. I drink my super coffee that I have now for the afternoon. And then I meditate. And so I turn on an app. Uh, I use things like balance, calm, uh, headspace. Um, there's a new one called Stoa, which is based on stoicism. And it's a, usually a guided meditation, 10 or 15 minutes that usually involves some kind of setting some type of intention, lots of deep breathing to be present, body, mental body scans might include a visualization sequence as well, or meditating on a certain concept, something like that. It really helps, I believe, ground us, clears our head. I like to win the morning by doing that. Um, so I feel like I don't check any messages or social media until I take care of me first. That's hard. A, it is hard, uh, but it's a healthier way to go. 
And then after that, I will do a concentration task, either on an, on an app or on paper. I will read some of my goals and objectives that I'm working on. And then I always read a passage from a book called The Daily Stoic, which is like a quote of the day by Ryan Holiday, mm-hmm. and uh, just kind of reflect on that. And that takes me, you know, an hour or less every morning. And if you have to wake up earlier to do it, well, why not? I mean, you're taking care of you. You should be more important than anything before you start your day. So how does that, how does the actual act of meditation translate to the golf course? What have you seen on, you know, you said clearing your head, uh, grounding yourself. What, what does that have to do with golf? Cause I know it does, but what would, what would you say if you're prescribing that to somebody as opposed to just do it because Dr. J says to, yeah, yeah. this is why, and I think this is why it would help you. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's a great way to clear your head. It's a great way to learn what being in the present feels like. I mean, it's a skill. You have to practice being present. So meditation is a very formal way of practicing being in the moment by paying attention to your breath, paying attention to any sensations that you have. So when you're on the golf course and you're getting nervous or anxious, you can reconnect with those feelings by taking a few deep breaths or paying attention to your foot hitting the ground or listening to the birds chirping or the wind blowing through the trees. And but next thing you know, you're you're back. You're back to being present, and then you, you can make better decisions with that clear head. So I think it's a wonderful practice. More and more athletes have started using it. I mean, LeBron is a big meditator. He's invested in the app called Calm. So I mean, if these guys are doing it, that, that's a big endorsement for meditation. Yeah. And it's been around for a million years. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's uh, that. I think I I love that because it it the way I think of it is it's it's the, it's a similar thing to hitting balls and how it, you know, that's the comfort of the driving range and hitting balls. Everyone would say is valuable and that's going to translate to the golf course and working out of the gym, building your strength. That's going to translate to the golf course. You're not lifting weights at on the golf course, but the strength, it truly, um, clearly applies. So doing that kind of in the comfort of your own couch, meditation is like building that mental strength that will apply on the golf course. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned stoicism. Um, what does, what is, how does stoicism come into golf? What, what, they they seem pretty, uh, left field and right field, but what, how does, how would you apply it? Yeah. So I came across it, picked up this book called the obstacle is the way by Ryan holiday. Who's down in Austin, Texas, amazing young author. So smart. And I just started reading it and it just made so much sense. Like the obstacles away means basically any barrier or obstacle is an opportunity for you to get better or learn something or get stronger. Right. And I said, well, that's the same thing in golf or any sport. Like you're always going to be faced with barriers and, and obstacles. So you can either choose to worry about it or you can choose to figure it out. And so I got more and more into it and realized like, you know what? Guys like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Epictetus, the Greek and Roman philosophers, they were the originators of control the controllables. So when you hear that, it comes from that. Mm. So those are the forefathers of what we all say now, like be present, control the controllables, because they were the ones that coined the idea, hey, focus on what is up to you instead of what is not up to you, which essentially transfers to control the controllables. So, you know, it's big on these virtues of being courageous having discipline, act with justice, and be wise. And if you can apply those to your life and to your sport, 
I just think you're you're maximizing your mental capacity by doing that. Yeah. So that that brings up the idea of kind of living by values rather mm-hmm. than kind of the emotions of the moment. Why why is that a better way to go when when you're going through a round of golf where there is obstacles? Why is it better to live by <clears throat> values than emotions? Yeah, I think values can also translate to who are we as an identity, right? So the value, what values do we have, which turns into who you are, right? And so if you decide, I want to be the kind of person that, well, then everything you do needs to be filtered through that set of values or that identity. And so if you don't have one, then you're at the whim of everything else. You're not in charge of you. You're, you're being pushed around by everybody else's expectations of you, not your own. So what kind of player do you want to be? Are you the kind of player that stays calm under pressure? Are you the kind of player that hits bombs down the fairway? Well, if you are, what behaviors do you need to engage in to back that up? Because you want your behaviors to be in alignment with who you're trying to become. And if you're not in alignment, that's when we get into some serious mental health issues. You're not sure who you are. Mm. How can someone find out who they are? Is it something they say they uh, choose to be, or is it something that they they already are and they have to tap into it? How do you kind of talk around that? I, I, I think it's a mix of both. I don't like to go one way or the other on, on anything. So, you know, we're all born with a certain set of skills, characteristics, things like that, that are just kind of innate in us. But sometimes we choose to believe things that aren't accurate. We're given a lot of feedback when we're young and as we experience things. And sometimes we assimilate in that into our construct. And but it might not be accurate. It might not be true. And it might not be healthy either. We, we repeatedly say things about ourselves to ourselves. But those might not be true either. Like kids that say they're not good at something, like not good at math or not good at that. Well, if you keep saying it, you're going to believe it. You know, the old self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, you can choose something different. It's hard, but you can do that. So I take my athletes through a process where we we look at the barriers to our success. We look at character skills and we identify what do we really want to be as a person and as an athlete? And let's write something. Let's put it down on paper. Let's brainstorm. Let's come up with a statement of who you want to be. And let's read that every day, post it everywhere and ask yourself every day, what am I going to do to live up to that on the golf course, in the classroom, in the community? So you're living in alignment with good values. Mm. Yeah. And that, that kind of goes back to the recognize and replace when you recognize that you're not living by those values. Hmm. Maybe this isn't super helpful right now. I can, this is what I should be doing. Right. What's the wise choice here? Yeah. 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 Okay. So would you, would you say that most athletes already have the uh, what am I trying to get at? Already, already possess all the correct knowledge. You just have to draw it out of them. Or is there a lot of knowledge that athletes just kind of don't have like misconceptions from reading things and getting it from different places? Uh, or do you feel like, no, everyone's got that answer within them already. And I know this maybe is a strange question, but do you, uh, does it seem like everyone is innately good at this? They just have gotten off the path? What do you think? Not exactly. I think, you know, you've probably heard the term like unconsciously incompetent, like you don't know what you don't yeah. know. So there's certain things we just don't know we don't know. Yeah. And so we got to be enlightened, so to speak. But there's some other things we do. 
Um, I'm very lucky that oftentimes the clients I work with, they want to get better, mm. right? Otherwise they wouldn't be here. The work I do, I usually end up with semi-motivated people, right? They're athletes, they're competitors. So they're like, I want to figure this out. So sometimes they have those skills, but they didn't tap them. And, and I say they have them because they wouldn't be as far as they are if they didn't. You don't make it to certain spots without having some level of mental toughness or skill set. So now it's about showing them what they do have, maybe massaging it or enhancing or adjusting certain things. It could just be a simple thing like, hey, we need to talk to ourselves different. We need to eliminate negativity. We need to be, we need to eliminate negativity around our lives in terms of what you listen to, people you're around. And, and that might just be the tipping point for you to be a little bit more neutral or positive in your life. Uh, or it could be they don't know anything about meditation or they don't know anything about pre-shot routines or or how to prepare the correct way for a tournament or how to strategize around a golf course. So certainly I love the fact that I get to educate them and see that light bulb go on. But then you see them make connections like, oh, this is like when I do it this way in other parts of my life. Like, yeah, you have that skill. You just need to apply it in golf. Yeah. Well said. So then it, you've got kind of a question I like to ask um, is you've you've got two athletes that have, for all intents and purposes, performed or uh, prepared the exact same way. They've got all the same trainers. And what comes to mind is, um, you know, two really good professional players mm. and one <clears throat> beats the other on the day. Do you why? Well, why? Why do you think that is? Oh, if I knew that question, right? Yeah, right. Uh, my hypothesis would be that it's how they're choosing to perceive their current situation. Like physically, they could have trained exactly the same amount of hours, same amount of swings, and have similar coaches and have access to resources. But mentally, they might be different. They maybe one has had a fight with his significant other right before the round. Uh, maybe they're not feeling great. Who knows? I mean, it could be a different, a bunch of different perceptions that could cause one or the other to play better or worse than the other. Um, and essentially, it comes down to execution, though, right? Because we can lead the horse to water, but they got to be the one to do it, you know, when the money's on the line. So yeah. who's able to maximize their ability to manage that pressure better than the other? It comes yeah. down to me managing the pressure in the moment. Sure. Okay. You would say that as a as a mental performance coach, right? <laughs> you, yes. you would, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what what have you seen now? Now we're comparing the best players to maybe the not best, right? To the average. What's the difference there uh, between between those two? The the kind of top tier, the the guys that make it, <clears throat> you know, to Corn Ferry Tour, or PGA Tour, mm -hmm. and the guys that just kind of stay on the mini tours. The what what would you say this is the difference there? Well, certainly there's there's going to be different levels of what I call talent, and then so you're born with a certain level of talent, I believe, and then it's up to you what you do with it, um, using deliberate practice under pressure to help you get better in those pressure situations, and then how do you manage pressure, and then obviously time, right? Do you have the time to become that good? I mean, the guys on tour have more time. That's their mm -hmm. job. Where a typical scratch or club golfer, single digit, they work. So they're not practicing six, eight hours a day and they don't have access to the trainers and the swing coaches that everybody else does. They still might have some great talent, but they're just not able to cultivate it to that level. 
So I, I think I also a big believer in what uh, John Sherman has said in his book, um, The Four Foundations. I got to meet John at one of the Chasing Scratch events. He's a wonderful person. And I love the idea of managing those expectations, you know, as an amateur golfer. I think it also comes down to discipline. You know, do, are you doing what you need to do when you're supposed to do it the way it's supposed to be done? Mm-hmm. You know, and if you can't subscribe to that, then you have no right to be that upset if things aren't going the way you want to. You have these goals, but you're not actually putting in the work or you don't have the time to put in the work. So take a step back and just be happy and enjoy yourself. Yeah, you're the the kind of saying you're not good enough to get upset about that shot. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly. So it uh, something that I've um I put out a question on Twitter recently, like if you could wave a magic wand and be an amazing player, what would what would have to change in order for that to happen? And most people said time, right? Yeah. I need I don't get enough time. So if a if an amateur player is lacking time, right? They work, they've got mm-hmm. an hour here, an hour there. Yeah. What what would you tell them to do with that time? Let's let's say they got two hours a week. How should yeah. they spend that time? Physical, mental, whatever? I think a mix of both. I mean, depending on where they are in their game, if they're a yeah. very high handicapper, then I think they need to spend more time on the physical part. They need to learn the skills. I think that's solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're scratch or single digit, you're you're probably not going to get that much more better with your Mm -hmm. swing your swing is your swing at that point so then it becomes about managing your mindset so depending on where they are i would you know take that time into different levels of percentages uh but if you do physical practice then be effective right um practice under pressure set up little games with yourself or with a buddy um but don't just go out there and hit balls you know warm up and then say okay for the next 10 minutes i'm going to work on this shot but I'm going to do it in a way where I'm challenging myself with some kind of consequence. Like, hey, I'm going to put 10 balls down. Seven out of 10 need to be within so many feet of my target. And if they're not, I got to start over. And not only that, for those 10 shots, I'm going to go through my full routine in practice, quality over quantity. Because then when you get on the course, you, you've simulated this level of pressure. Maybe not the same, but you've simulated some level of pressure uh, in that situation. So it, practice effectively under pressure. And then if you are a very good player, maybe take some of that chunk of time, meditate, visualize, work on your concentration, work on your routines, things like that. Obviously, the short game, things like that uh, to help them maximize whatever time they do have. Mm. uh, Quality over quantity, intention, planned, effective, applicable to the golf course not going through the motions, just getting out there and beating as many balls as I can, try to get as many balls as I can in. And and you know, Josh, you know why people won't do that? It's hard. It's boring. (laughs) It's not that that much fun. Yeah. And if you're working on something that you're not good at, your ego gets in the way. You don't Mm -hmm. want to look bad on the T line, right? At your club. So like, well, I could work on this knockdown shot that I really need. Or I could just hit this shot because it feels amazing and I look good. And all the guys coming up to me are going to say, oh, your ball sounded real crispy today. And you feel great. But then you go on the course and you don't have that shot needed. You're exposed. Yeah. You're exposed. So the best players, I think, are the ones that don't care about what other people think. And they work on their weaknesses way more than their strengths. And they do it under pressure. To me, that's the difference between average and elite right there. Mm, I love that. Okay. So one final question. Kind of put you on the spot. What okay. what percentage of you mentioned the percentages of mental, physical? What percentage of golf is mental, and what percentage is physical? Would you say? Well, again, I'm going to qualify it a little bit. Where depending how physically good you are, 
right? Where you are in your game. So let's assume, you know, your audience is lower handicappers. I would say that it's going to be 70 to 90% mental uh, for them. And they need to invest more time in their mental game. Uh, Not that they need to give up on practice, but they need to add that to get more value out of their time uh, to practice. So, but I would say if you're a high handicapper, it's probably a lot less mental. Uh, You need to get physically better before the mental really kicks in. Because when you're just learning how to play, it's just, hey, let's get the ball in the air and down the fairway. Then when you get better, it's like, oh, I'm expected to make these shots now. So that's when it changes over to me. You start feeling that pressure of those expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And your physical game is pretty consistent at that point. You can do it when there's no pressure, but can you do it when there's pressure? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well said. Okay. So where would you, where would you drive people? Um, how would you promote the floor is yours of, um, of any listeners? What, what, what would you like to promote for yourself? Where, where would you send people? Uh, just my website. It's uh, champmindset.com. Uh, I'm on there. My associate, Coach Kelsey, is on there as well. Um, she's great. She's a former college volleyball player that's helping a lot of young athletes as well. Um, I'm on social media. You know, Jason, J.S. Novetsky, uh, J.S. Novetsky, PhD, I think is on Twitter, Champ mm-hmm. Mindset Group at uh, Instagram, things like that. But if you just Google Champion Mindset Group in Michigan, you'll find us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Novetsky. This, is, uh, this has been enlightening. Oh, good. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jason. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's just just such a relatable, normal conversation instead of, you know, sometimes we talk a lot about science on here, and we talked about a little bit of that in this episode. Uh, We talk a lot about research uh, on this uh, podcast um, with different guests. Uh, this was just kind of practical. This is what you do, and um, and very you know applicable to everyday scenarios. And not that past episodes have not been that, because I think every every episode on this podcast is relatable and down to earth on some levels. But I didn't. I don't know. This was just a just a cool conversation with a really smart guy that's been doing this a long time. So I hope you took notes. I hope you learned something from. Dr. Novetsky, he's um, he's a cool guy, and I hope I, I hope I get to um, to talk with him in the future. But as I always mention on uh, the end of these episodes, what you've heard here isn't therapy. It's meant for information and education purposes only. If you feel like you need personal help on some deeper things you're going through, I encourage you to go talk to a licensed professional. But on the golf psychology front, if you feel like you've uh, what you've heard here doesn't quite cut it and you'd like to work one-on-one with someone, I highly encourage you to work with someone like uh, Dr. Novetsky or myself. I'm a golf psychology coach. Uh, I work with players all over the world on improving their minds so they can improve their performance on the course. If you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to send an email to mentalgolfshow at gmail.com or you can visit my website, joshnicholsgolf.com. All right. Thanks again to everybody listening to the podcast, whether you're new here or you've been here since day one, I really appreciate the community that we've built. It's, it's been one of the uh, most enjoyable aspects of all this is the people that I get to communicate with, whether it's guests or listeners on a daily basis of just surrounding this podcast. It's just such a cool thing. So if you've enjoyed this episode, go subscribe and leave a review on Apple podcasts or Spotify. And I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend. Uh, 
if you if you learned anything from Dr. Novetsky, maybe it's about how to handle pressure, maybe it's about your identity as a golfer and the values that you can respond to things with, maybe it's about emotions, whatever. If if something resonated with you or reminded you of someone, go share this with that person. Uh, I think it could make a difference and and it could spread around. So anyway, thanks for listening to the Mental Golf Show. I'm Josh Nichols, and I will catch you guys next time.